And uh, thank you to the five people who shared their stories. It was just wonderful. And just to get that little snapshot of how God's at work in each of your lives, we're so encouraged that you would be willing to share with us. And uh, we look forward to to baptizing you a little bit later. My name is Paul Rees, and I'm the lead pastor here at Shark Chapel. Uh, The elders have asked me to uh, remind you that uh, I'm going on sabbatical, uh, April, May, June. So if you don't see me for three months, there hasn't been a secret coup. Uh, They know where my body is, and uh, they very graciously have allowed me to have three months to learn from other churches. I'm going to try and spend some time with uh, other larger churches to see how they run things as well as study the book of Hebrews, and I hope to come back uh, and uh, preach in the book of Hebrews when I return from my sabbatical uh, in the second half of this year. So uh, that starts at the beginning of April. I'd value your prayers that that would be a useful time, a refreshing time, that I'd know more of Christ, and I'd come back to be more useful to this church. Next Sunday, uh, I want to um, do something different to what I originally planned to do, And I want to talk about how the Apostle Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, but ambitious for the gospel. And I want to share some of our plans as a church of how we want to be ambitious for the gospel uh, in our our time here in this city. Uh, As you'll have noticed, we're very full. And it's a wonderful thing, uh, but the elders last week have given the go-ahead for us to provisionally make plans to see two churches planted in the next three years. And also, we're also considering moving to two services to make space so that we can reach more people. So next Sunday, I want to share more of that, give you some more facts about that. And that's going to start a conversation amongst the members, uh, heading towards a members meeting in May and uh, November time. So, exciting times. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word, that we're not in the dark about who you are, we're not in the dark about what you want from us. And so would you help us now as we dig into uh, the Gospel of Matthew, that you would speak uh, into each one of our lives. Help us to see the brilliance of Jesus. Help us to understand what it means to follow him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wonder what do you think God is looking for in your life? Maybe you've never considered this. But God, the loving creator who made you, has actually got a reason why he made you. There's a purpose for your life. You're in a room full of people that doesn't think we're here by some random cosmic accident, but there's a loving, purposeful creator, and each of your lives is precious and important, and God's got a purpose for you. In fact, we're going to see as we read our passage today that... um, He's very interested to see whether we're fulfilling that purpose. He gets up close. He has a look to see what we do and why we do it. To look at our actions and our hearts. What do you think God desires to see as he looks at your life and mine right now? We're in the presence of God. He sees everything about us. Not just in this room, but when we head out into our lives. What is it that he desires to see in our lives right now? And what is it that he desires to see in this church? 
Sunday by Sunday, we say we gather in his presence, and that is rightly so. There's a sense in which in a very special way, God meets with his people as they gather together. What is it that he desires to see amongst us, in us, through us as a church? Well, we don't need to guess. Uh, We don't need just to go into a dark room and, and think deep thoughts and try and work it out, because we can discover it from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. And so if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, just put your hand up and they'll bring one to you. But if you uh, have one of these church Bibles, you could turn to page 988 and that'll find you to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. So if you've got an app on your phone, open it up and have a look at Matthew 21 or in the church Bible, page 988, Matthew chapter 21. Because let's see what happens when the Messiah King, the very one that God promised to send to his people turned up at the capital city of Jerusalem. Right? The king has come to the capital city. What happens? Let's read Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind And the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, 
If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. This is God's word. Keep it open in front of you. There's so much here. There's so much we could say about this. It's an extraordinary section. Jesus makes three very deliberate statements with his actions here to teach us something about who he is and what he expects from us. At one level, if you're new to these things, if you've never been to Sunday school, it may seem very strange to make a statement with a donkey, with tables, and with a fig tree. But that's exactly what Jesus does. And actually, hopefully you notice that as you read the account, it keeps quoting these words saying, these happened to fulfill. And you see, our Christian Bibles are made up of two halves. There's an Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, written about all the events uh, from Abraham onwards, about the history of Israel, which is essentially a whole series of promises of what God was going to do. And in the second half, the New Testament, 27 books that point us to the way that Jesus fulfilled all that was promised. And so if you've come here today, and this is, you're new to everything, some of these things may, may seem very strange. A donkey? A fig tree? Uh, the temple? What's going on here? And uh, what you really need to, to understand the significance is to get what the Old Testament is about. That's why we teach it in our Sunday school. That's why we teach, from, teach it in different groups. Because in a sense, the Old Testament makes the New Testament pop up into 3D. Uh, in a sense, without the Old Testament, the New Testament is kind of looks like black and white. But with the Old Testament background, it pops up into 4K, high definition, boom. You see it in the significance. And we don't have time to dig into all those different ways today. But actually, I got really excited this week to see all the multiple ways that Jesus' actions here are actually seeking to tell us about who he is and what he's done. And it all makes perfect sense when you get the, the first half of the book. But I'm going to try and explain it as we go along. Three significant, deliberate statements by Jesus. Firstly, the first statement was to the whole city of Jerusalem. And it was in his, the choice of his transport in this very public arrival into the capital city of Jerusalem. If anything, if you've been reading through Matthew's Gospel, you'll see in some ways Jesus tried to be a bit more incognito. But this is a very public statement. And your choice of transport makes a big statement. Um, when you have a royal marriage, they don't turn up in a black taxi cab, do they? They turn up in a horse-drawn golden carriage with, with glass so you can see it. Um, the, the, the car dealers want you to know the car you buy is making a statement. Your transport makes a statement. I, I remember a few years ago, I, I watched uh, President Obama arrive in the UK for meetings with other world leaders at the G20. And I don't know whether you've ever seen this. It's incredible. He flies in on Air Force One, a Boeing 747 that has uh, equipment that can uh, deal with um, nuclear blasts and, and protection of, the, of, the, of, of lots of the panels. It can do very cool things. 
because it's, it's the office of the president as it flies in. And when he touches down, he gets into Marine One, his personal helicopter, that can fire flares that if missiles start coming at it, can have, 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 have things that prevent missiles from striking it. And uh, he always travels in a convoy of at least three identical planes, uh, airplanes, um, helicopters, because you don't know which one's got the president to the last minute when it peels off and it lands. And then he gets into the presidential limo called the Beast. And if you love eschatology, that would cause a lot of excitement. <laughs> Gets into the beast, and this thing is a formidable car. Uh, it is reinforced steel plating. It can protect him from bullets, from chemical attacks, and even a missile strike. It's not hard to spot. Uh, there's, there's loads of support cars. He travels with uh, his own doctor and a medical unit, nurses, surgeons. He's got his own blood ready to go in case he needs an emergency transfusion. My friends, that is not transport. That's a statement, isn't it? That's a statement. This is not just a man. This is a projection of power. This is the status of the United States of America. This is the president of the United States. This is theater. And there's no doubt that riding a donkey into Jerusalem was a very deliberate statement. We, we read all the details. Jesus uh, has made some preparations, it would seem, and he sends his disciples ahead. There's de definite instructions how they're going to pick up this, the, this, this, uh, this young colt and bring the mother with it. And, um, and the, the disciples put their coats on the donkey, and he sits on the coats on the donkey, and, and then they, they, they march into Jerusalem. It is a definite statement, but what was it? Well, at that time, there was a great political ferment. They, they weren't running their own affairs, uh, the Jewish nation. It was a, the Roman Empire. Every time I look at Andrea, I think, that's what the Roman Empire looked like? Uh, that fine Italian man, too smiley, too happy. Uh, but yes, the Roman Empire was in charge and people weren't happy about it. I suppose Jesus could have actually built on that ferment, couldn't he? He could have chosen a war horse. He could have, he could have uh, got hold of a chariot and been driven in and looked like a conquering military hero, uh, make a big political statement. But he doesn't choose that. He chooses this donkey. He's completely undercutting their expectations of what sort of king he was going to be. And in fact, for those who had eyes to see it, for those who knew the Old Testament and their scriptures, it was a very big theological statement. And Matthew wants us to see it. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. God had promised the prophet Zechariah that a day would come when the king that would usher in this incredible kingdom that would bring peace to the nations. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. And uh, actually, there's, there's two quotes in verse 5. There's a quote from Isaiah 62, 11, Say to daughter Zion, and, and the quote goes on in Isaiah, See your Savior comes. And the Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when Jesus is riding in on a donkey, surprisingly, it is the equivalent of turning up in the presidential car, the beast. It is a statement. Here is the, the king. The one that uh, King David 
received an amazing promise from God, the one that would rule over an everlasting kingdom, the one who would achieve great salvation and victory for his people. This is the one who had come to Jerusalem. In fact, as Jesus chooses a donkey, he is making a statement that he is the humble king who had come to save. You see, this this salvation he was going to bring, it wasn't going to be by a political solution. It wasn't a military solution. And he rides in humility and meekness and gentleness. Uh, We saw it a few weeks ago. As Jesus says, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here was a king who came to serve us. Here was a king who knows that our lives are a moral mess, that we fail to live up to our own standards, we fail to live up to God's standards, we end up hurting the people that we love the most, the Bible calls it sin. And this is the king who has come to die on a cross and achieve our salvation. If you have time later, read read through the book of Zechariah. It won't take you long. Because what you'll learn in the rest of the the, the prophecy of Zechariah, that this very king who comes to Jerusalem uh, on the donkey is going to be rejected by his people. Is actually going to be struck down by God. And on that very day, a fountain is going to open up in Jerusalem that's going to cleanse people from their sins. That's going to bring forgiveness. This is the king that Jesus was. He came in fulfillment of these ancient promises to achieve this amazing salvation with God so that all the mess of our past can be erased, wiped clean, forgiven. He came to swap places with us on the cross so he was punished in our place. Did the crowds get it? I'm not sure at this stage they really did. They they get behind the excitement, don't they? And actually, the responses they make are quite correct. They give him the red carpet treatment, and Jesus is worthy of that. And they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. That word, Hosanna, what does it mean? Save us. Save us, Messiah King, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the right thing to shout. They recognize here's the one who comes and represents God and is fulfilling the purposes of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a big statement, a big splash if they had eyes to see it, if they knew their Old Testament. And, uh, and yet it seems that they don't really quite get it because when the whole city is stirred up and they, and, and, and by this great entry and they ask, who is this? The answer is, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What I find interesting about that is when you read about the Old Testament prophets, they sometimes did rather crazy and wacky things. They did all sorts of strange things to to get people's attention, to see what God was saying to them. And in a sense, Jesus is acting like a prophet as he gets on this donkey and he comes in and makes a big statement. This is the humble king who had come to save. That's who Jesus is. So what does he expect from us? To realize that we need to be saved. Do you realize that? It starts here. What does God expect from you? To realize that you need to be served by Jesus 
that you need to be saved by Jesus and by what he's done on the cross. And I want to ask you today, is he your saviour? We've heard five great stories of people who it took some time for the penny to drop. I love the way Andrea put it. Actually, he came along and enjoyed being here. Didn't have a clue what, 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 the, what the preacher was saying. Didn't have a clue what I was saying until the penny dropped. Ah! And each one of them gave, gave testament to this. The realization that, that they needed to be saved by Jesus. They needed to have their sins forgiven because of the death of Jesus. That's where it starts. What does God expect of you? He expects that you realize you need to be forgiven and saved by his son, Jesus. Second statement happens in the temple. It's quite a big statement, isn't it? I mean, imagine if I uh, went into um, Holyrood or uh, went to, into um, the main debating chamber at Westminster and I walked up and I picked up the mace and I started swinging it around and I started moving the furniture around and, and people say, what? Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? And this is what Jesus does. He comes to the very, the, the, the very center of the life of Israel. The temple was the very heart of the capital city. It was, it was freighted with so much significance. God had said, look, I want to live among you as my people. This will build a house. And that's where I'll dwell. And this will be a place where you can come and draw near to me. And I'll hear your prayers. And that's the place of, uh, of these sacrifices that uh, prefigured the death of Christ. Where they could, in a sense, know that their sins were forgiven. And they, they could get access to God. And it was the place where they could learn about God. And God's great plan was that the temple at the center of a... Of a of Israel was to be a, a beacon of light to the world so that the world uh, in its darkness, not knowing what God was like, could come to Israel, could see the way they live, could come to the temple, could see all about it and could know what God was like and could know what it was to get right with God, to know what it was to live their lives for God. That's what the temple was supposed to be. And Jesus, uh, after this triumphal entry, the next event that Matthew tells us is him walking into the temple, the very heart of it. And, and he walks, there was a series of courts that got progressively into a smaller place, the Holy of Holies, where God uh, was symbolized as dwelling. And the outer court was the court of Gentiles. It was the court where people from the nations could come in. And he walks into that space, and what does he do? Uh, he, it's a market. Uh, and there are money changes, and there, I haven't got time to explain why that was the case, but uh, it, it had turned into a marketplace, and Jesus starts throwing his weight about big time, doesn't he? Whew. Tables turned over, money going everywhere, shouts of the guy, why, can you imagine this chaos? And, and then Jesus kicking the stool out from those who are selling animals, Guy's falling down and he's driving people out of the temple. What a commotion. What a storm. What an event. What was he doing? Well, he's making a big statement. The statement is this. The temple was no longer fulfilling its God-given purpose. 
Temple worship had become a commercial enterprise rather than a place of prayer where people could come close to God. And again, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 56, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, Isaiah 56 says in its full quotation. It shall be a house of prayer for all nations. So God's intention was that, that, that this will be a place open to the world. And what have they done? They'd filled it up with a marketplace. Very handy to have a place to buy your animals if you're traveling from a distance. Uh, if you need to change your coins, handy to have that. But not in the temple courts. That could have happened outside. This was no longer a place where people could come to worship, where the nations could come to worship. Instead of being a place of prayer, they'd allowed it to become a marketplace uh, and actually probably where there's some rather sharp practices going on because actually this was good business. Uh, there were margins that were quite helpful for the temple. And the second part was a quote from uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's keep your fingers in Matthew. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 7. You'll find that on page 765. Page 765, Jeremiah, this uh, Old Testament prophet, was told to stand in the temple and tell the people that they were heading for judgment. Look at verse 9 of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You see, they, in Jeremiah's day, thought that they could do whatever they wanted, whatever dodgy things they wanted, to do things that God said that they should not do. Uh, sin all you want midweek and basically if you turned up on the weekend made your confession, made a few sacrifices uh, looked religious well everything was okay between you and God take a look at uh, verse 3 this is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in peace do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. By quoting this section, Jesus is basically saying, look, this, this place is full of hypocrisy. This is just outward religious show. People thinking they can do whatever they wanted and turn up, look a little bit religious, and that would keep them safe before a holy God. The world was supposed to come and look at Israel, look at its life, look at the temple and, and see what God was like. And actually what they were coming to see and witness was a den of robbers. And Jesus was incensed by that. And in a very deliberate way, he casts folk out of the temple. Think about this. There was a lot of religion going on. There were vestments, there were priests, there were sacrifices, all the accoutrements of of, of, of what religious life was supposed to look like. It, there was a lot of foliage. There was no fruit. Just like the fig tree we're about to get onto. But Jesus was not fooled, and God is not fooled. He sees into our lives right here, right now. He sees into our hearts and our motivations. 
and he is not fooled. And not only had that place become corrupt, but actually, this is the biggest indictment against them. They failed to recognize their Jewish Messiah when he turned up. The, the, the chief priests, the teachers of the Lord, were supposed to know their scriptures, supposed to know their promises. In fact, as they saw Jesus clearing out the temple, they should have remembered Malachi chapter 3, the promise that, that the Lord would appear in his temple and would refine and purify the temple, amongst other promises. They were supposed to know this. But actually, they kind of showed their complete unbelief. They weren't living in expectancy that God was going to fulfill his promises. And they couldn't see what was right in front of their eyes. They couldn't see the evidence that was right there. And it was huge evidence. Look at verse 14 of chapter 21, back in Matthew. Matthew 21, 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. So right there in the temple. The evidence of great wonders was happening in front of them. In Isaiah, it spoke of when God was going to come, the blind would see, the lame would leap for joy. And do you know what? In their very courts, in front of their very eyeballs, the formerly blind were seeing, praising God. The, the formerly lame that had been carried in were leaping for joy in front of their very eyes. And what's their response? Verse 15, when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, they saw it. And the children shouting out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Far from being thrilled, rejoicing, happy, delighted, welcoming, bowing, they were, they were angry. Jesus is messing up their temple, their religion. Business is going down the drain as the tables are going over. They show their complete unbelief in the promises of God. On two occasions in Matthew's gospel, Jesus taught the crowds that they needed to become like children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And once again, the children lead the way here, don't they? They show the right response as they shout out their praise to God for Jesus. Hosanna! to the son of David. And instead of joining in, the religious leaders were indignant. Instead of rejoicing, they were resentful. Do you hear what these children are saying, Jesus? He said, yes. And haven't you read and quotes from Psalm 8? From the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth your praise. Very encouraging for Sunday school. Uh, that's why we have good shouty singing times in Sunday school. It is, the Lord loves it to hear the songs and the praises of children. The response of the children was spot on, according to Jesus. And this event actually tells us who Jesus is, that he is the purifying king who has come to judge. This moment is the big reveal. Uh, when, you know, after the, uh, the washing machine test, you hold up the the clothes to the light and you look to see how clean it is and actually the religious leaders are held up to the light and all you see is big stains of unbelief avarice falling well short of what God called them to be they were not genuine worshippers of God at all they failed to recognize the king Tim Keller 
who uh, will be retiring as the minister of Redeemer Church in New York later this year, often points out that there are two ways we can reject God. Number one is by being very irreligious, caring nothing uh, about it. The other is by being very religious. There are still many in our world who engage in lots of religious activity, different forms of spirituality in order to earn a way of making themselves right before God, of justifying themselves in some way, while at the same time rejecting the very one that God sent to save, his son, Jesus Christ. And whether you're irreligious, and this is, you've never been to church before, or whether you're very super religious, if you're rejecting Christ, you're rejecting God. Being religious is not enough. Being moral is not enough. Uh, being devout or a Bible student is not enough. Holding a church office, being a pastor or a minister is not enough. If at the end of the day we fail to recognize who Jesus is and refuse to trust him as our savior. If that's the case, we're just a fruitless fig tree under condemnation. And the seriousness of that is seen in this third statement, which was a statement to his disciples of this fig tree. The cursing of a fig tree. If there's lots of leaves, apparently that's a sign that you should be able to uh, find some figs that you could eat. A little breakfast snack, early breakfast snack as they walk towards Jerusalem. So they see a fig tree with lots of leaves. They go up, have a look. Absolutely, Jesus finds absolutely no fruit at all. And it's a picture of, it's a picture of what he's found the day before in, in the temple, isn't it? And what does he do? He curses it, and it withers. And that's a pretty powerful statement to disciples, that basically the days of the Jewish temple were over. This empty, man-centered religion was judged and found wanting. Its days were numbered. They had missed the whole point of the scriptures. They failed to recognize the day when the Lord actually turned up, when the king that God had appointed had turned up, and that point on, it had no more relevance as institution. It was cursed. And of course, if you go to Jerusalem today, there is no temple. It was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. And the disciples, they're amazed to see this instant response in this fig tree. And so they asked Jesus, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And then you've got this very important statement, which it's taken me all week to really begin to see this. But Jesus underlines that this really is the important point. Verse 21, truly, I tell you. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. I puzzled over this this week. How is this the response to what's just all been happening? I'm so slow, it took me till about 11 o'clock yesterday to really get it. If the donkey riding was to show that Jesus is the humble king who'd come to save, and the overthrowing of the money tables is to show that Jesus is the purifying king who'd come to judge, then this fig tree withering is to show us that, that, that he's the temple building king who had come to commission. See, if the temple was to be this house of prayer, this place where people could meet with God, where God could 
could dwell in their presence where they could hear the instruction of the Lord and, 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 and enjoy fellowship with God. And that was going to be destroyed. Well, what then? Where will be the place of prayer? Where will be the place that people can meet with God and know God and hear the truth about God? Where's that going to be? Well, the answer's there in verses 21 and 22. Jesus is building a new temple. And it's not a physical building, but it is wherever his disciples gather in his name. The old temple had gone because of unbelief in God's promises. But Jesus was commissioning his disciples here to be a new spiritual temple, building their lives on him. And what does he want from you today if you're one of his disciples? He wants you to move mountains. It's so outrageous, isn't it? He wants you to move mountains in this world. Now, I've been scratching my head about moving mountains. I haven't seen any mountains moving recently, have you? Not geographic ones. I have actually seen a few spiritual ones. I think we've heard a few today. But come with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Keep your finger in, in Matthew, and let's turn back to Zechariah chapter 4. This is the, the prophet that's already been quoted. Uh, you'll find this on page uh, 952 in the church Bibles. So Jesus already deliberately made an illusion by picking a donkey from Zechariah 9. And there's this amazing statement in Zechariah chapter 4. This is kind of 400, 500 years before the coming of Jesus. Uh, the, the, the people had come back from exile. There's a destroyed city, a destroyed temple. And God, through the prophet, says to him, I want you to rebuild a temple. I am not done with you as a nation. I, I want to meet with you. I want to dwell amongst you. And uh, this guy, uh, Zerubbabel, is uh, the, the leader uh, of, the, of the people. And he's called to get on and build this temple. And uh, God makes this amazing promise to Zerubbabel uh, in verse 6. How's this going to happen, Zerubbabel? Well, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God's Holy Spirit is going to bring this great work about. Verse 7. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become level ground. Do you see that? The, the mountain of problems that got in the way for this temple building activity. For them to be what God called them to be. All the problems that are in their way. That, that mighty mountain is going to become a level ground. As if it gets thrown in the sea. And what's going to come in the place of it? Then he will bring out the capstone. The, the, the chief stone of the temple to shout, God bless it, God bless it. Zubal is going to be about this work of rebuilding that temple. That's mountain moving. Coming back to this section in Matthew chapter 21 then. What does God want from our lives? Well, to recognize that we need to be saved by Jesus. We need to be served by him. To recognize that he is the returning judge. He actually looks at our lives. Our lives matter. He examines them. And what's the fruit he's looking for? It's the fruit of faith in his promises. A faith that trusts his promises. A faith that builds its life on Jesus. And he commands people like that 
to a great commission in this world. People don't have to go to a Jerusalem to meet with God. If you know and love Jesus, they just have to meet you. And do you know what? He calls us to engage in this priestly ministry of prayer. If you pray, believing and don't doubt, God's going to answer it. If we are praying that God would move the mountain of unbelief that we see in front of us in people's lives, if God would move the mountain of apathy, if God would, would, would move the mountain that, uh, of distraction that's in people's lives, that they would come to know Jesus and build their life on him, God says, I'm going to answer prayers like that. I'm going to answer prayers that build my kingdom. And if you know and love Jesus today, as you head out into the world, you're commissioned by this Jesus to fulfill one of the functions of the temple, to make God known in the world. As you talk with people and hear their problems, you know, you can say to them, I've got someone who can fix that problem. I'll pray for you. Can I pray for you now? You have every access to pray to the Father on their behalf. Praying that he would accomplish his purposes of building his kingdom into the world. How exciting. How amazing. Do you know what? It's, it's not the amount of faith. Earlier in Matthew 17, Jesus says, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it will move. Only you need mustard seed faith in a mighty Jesus and you will make mountains move. I don't know about you, but that encourages me to pray. It encourages me as we head out of here into the world that God's got things for me to do, to represent God to the world, that as people see the way that we live our lives, the way we love Jesus, the way we praise Jesus, they can know what God is like. And this is something that he will accomplish, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God. That's a lot of information. If you've got any questions, come and ask me afterwards. I'm so excited about this. I'd love to, I could, I could do it again for you and try and explain it. It's so important we get this, but we need to baptize some people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, uh, that you saw us in our rotten religious state, in our sin and our wickedness, and instead of writing us off, you sent him to be our savior. We could never earn, earn this salvation, we could never earn our forgiveness, and yet you've freely given it in the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for him. We thank you that he is the king who purifies he is the returning king who will judge. And so, Father, we ask that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we would be this people of believing faith. Lord, that you'd make every member of this church to be mountain-moving people in this city. Lord, grant us that little mustard seed of faith that we'll have the courage and confidence to pray that you would cause your kingdom to come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. <clears throat>